Welcome to Across the Street, your one-stop shop for all things inpatient medicine at the Durham VA, from faculty and staff who know it and love it just as much as you do. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Across the Street. Today, we are going to be talking about the art of the goals of care conversation. And with me today to discuss this really important topic is Dr. Joshua Briscoe. He is a palliative care physician and the medical director of the inpatient hospice unit in the CLC here at the Durham VA. He also runs the inpatient palliative care consult service, which might be where you've run into him on the wards, as well as the outpatient palliative care clinic. He got his medical degree from West Virginia University, and he did internal medicine and psych combined residency at Duke. I think we were residents together, weren't we, Josh? We were, yeah, you were one year ahead. Um, and then he did a fellowship in hospice and palliative medicine. Uh, Dr. Briscoe also has a monthly newsletter called Notes from a Family Meeting that he shared with me a couple weeks ago, and I got to read through a couple of them, and they're really insightful and interesting. So thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so we're going to talk about the goals of care conversation, which I imagine it comes up a lot in palliative care. Oh, definitely, yeah. Yeah. How often would you say you're consulted specifically for this? So when I talk to patients and I'm meeting them for the first time, I essentially say I do two big things. I help folks with anything that bothers them, symptoms, pain, nausea, sleep, anxiety. And then I also help folks and their families going through tough times and making hard medical decisions, which encompasses goals of care conversations. So it's half of what I do formally speaking, but it's often broached in almost every encounter I'm engaged in. So can you define the term goals of care for us and tell us why they matter? So this is really important to think about because I feel like when we often talk about goals of care, we're often talking about a euphemism that applies to end-of-life discussions, but I think it's really important to keep in mind that the goals of care apply to all care. So I think about the goals of care as being three things, and these encompass how medicine can intervene on someone's body to help them live a healthy life. The goals of care are longevity, function, and comfort. And so the way I talk to patients about this is I say some folks uh, want to work hard to try and live as long as possible or to be as strong as possible or to achieve some milestone or to be as comfortable as possible. And of course, you want all three of those things. And when you're young and healthy, you can have all three of those things. But when you get seriously ill or frail, you have to prioritize what you want among them because trade-offs come with medical decisions when you're seriously ill. That's just the nature of the beast. Most medical care in the default mode is geared towards longevity and not all patients want that. And so it's really important to have in mind what the goals of care are so that you and the patient and the family can align and get on the same page around the overall guiding philosophy of care. Oftentimes I find teams and clinicians are butting heads with patients and families because they have different understandings of what the goals of care are, and they've started talking about preferences and interventions before they've clarified what the goals of care are. And when do you think is the right time to have these conversations? Is it when time is short, or can we do it before that? I think it could be happening any time along someone's life, because we all have physical bodies that are frail and mortal and limited and, and can become debilitated and disabled. And so I think it's important to understand at any given clinical visit, what the goals of care are. Now, I'm not saying have a full-on family meeting at every single primary care visit. I am saying, though, that it's important to understand if you and the patient and the family are on the same page about what's intended when you're recommending a certain intervention, whether it be a medication or a surgery, whatever the case may be. I think there are some particular milestones we should be watching out for that should prompt 
a discussion and clarification around the goals of care because the trade-offs can be extreme. So for example, there might be disease-specific milestones. So if you have somebody with heart failure, it might be at the diagnosis of heart failure. And then along the way, it might be when they're having recurrent admissions or when they're being evaluated for advanced heart failure therapies, whether it be inotropes or VAD or a heart transplant, certainly before a transplant evaluation of any kind, that would be a good disease specific milestone. You know, if you're looking at something like dementia, then you're looking at diagnosis as well as other milestones along the way, like you know, not being able to do IADLs, not being able to do ADLs, um, becoming bedbound, requiring more care, suffering medical sequela of dementia, like wounds or aspiration, these sorts of things should all prompt a reevaluation of the goals of care. So you can reassess and make sure the family and patient understand that the trade-offs might change or become more extreme as you're pursuing a certain goal. And I think all of this is in service of helping the patient and the veteran pursue health. So whether they're a healthy 25-year-old just with some plantar fasciitis in your primary care clinic or an 80-year-old with three different cancers admitted to GenMed, we need to understand why we're recommending the interventions we're recommending for them and making sure we're aligned around those common interest roles of care. Yeah, that's so insightful. And, you know, I can say as an inpatient hospitalist at a VA, when these conversations have already been started in the outpatient setting, and then maybe someone is admitted for, to use your language, one of those disease-specific milestones, that definitely helps us because the door's already been open to the conversation. But sometimes for, you know, sometimes that conversation hasn't been started yet. Perhaps this was a, a disease-specific milestone that had not been anticipated or someone's health has abruptly changed for some reason, for example, a stroke or a heart attack that no one saw coming. So if it's okay with you, Dr. Briscoe, I'd love to break down sort of what a goals of care conversation and interaction with patient and family might look like. So let's start off with who should be there if we're having these conversations in the inpatient setting. Great. So that's a wonderful question. I think it's really important to not take anything for granted because sometimes when you're having a conversation with a patient in the emergency department or admitted to the hospital, particularly in COVID times, you might only be talking with them and there's nobody else around. And because we value respect for autonomy so much, as long as they have decision-making capacity, they're the ones calling the shots. So it seems to be that they're the only ones we should be talking to. And that's a trap. You should really be involving uh, at least their surrogate decision-maker, if not other relevant constituents in their life. Some people want, you know, even, even though they're married and their wife is their surrogate decision maker, they want their daughter who's a nurse. You want the people who are most important to the patient present in these discussions, both because for the supporting the patient and their decision making, but also because when you're making big decisions in the midst of serious illness and the patient has capacity, if you're not on the same page about the goals of care now, then you might lose that later when they have decision-making capacity. The reality of the situation is most people are making decisions kind of as a group. Most people want to deliberate with their family and their loved ones about major medical decisions. And so they should be involved in these big discussions. If it's a really complicated case, relevant specialists should be at, at these discussions. If you have a patient with cancer and they have respiratory failure and these sorts of things, then the pulmonologist and the oncologist should be there in addition to the general internists and perhaps other specialties like physical therapy. If there's an important role for physical therapy at home or in an institutionalized setting, that doesn't mean everybody talks. So you should definitely be having a meeting beforehand to make sure you're on the same page as a team. 
and perhaps only have one speaker. In fact, the more people that are talking during a meeting like this, the more complicated and confusing it can be for families. But at least having all those people there to answer questions is really important too. Yeah, so I'm hearing primary team as well as relevant specialists and providers and then patient, obviously, when they're able to participate and surrogates, not necessarily to make decisions on behalf of the patient, but if the patient's able to express themselves to make sure that they hear what the patient really needs, because oftentimes these conversations don't happen until somebody's in the hospital and we're not really sure what our loved ones want of us until the question is asked. Can you speak a little more to when palliative care can be helpful? Yeah, so obviously what we've been talking about so far, any clinician uh, should have some competence in doing. You should be able to talk to patients about major medical decisions. I find that palliative care can be most useful if discussions with families are really complicated, um, if the family is not coping well with decisions set before them, so they're struggling emotionally to manage the information that's being given to them, whether it be from a prognosis standpoint or understanding how the interventions factor into their overall goals of care, or they're ambivalent about their goals of care. So they're seriously ill and their prognosis is limited as far as their life expectancy and what to expect as far as functional recovery and improvement in their symptoms. Um, but they want everything. They want to live as long as they can, but they want to be as comfortable as possible. And they want to get back to fishing and playing with their grandchildren. And the team is worried that might not be realistic. And they've tried to talk to the family and the patient about this. And everybody's kind of spinning their wheels. I find that an expert palliative care consultation to be helpful in that scenario to help support patients and guide them through some of that ambivalence. Certainly in situations where symptoms are also complicating the the decision-making, it's really hard to make complex medical decisions when you uh, have overwhelming symptoms like pain or nausea or dyspnea. And sometimes the urgency of the situation requires that you make a complex medical decision even when symptoms are overwhelming. But ideally, we would do a better job of managing symptoms before we ask patients to make really difficult, complex medical decisions. I think also another area in which palliative care can be helpful is just when uh, the team, the clinicians feel like they've exceeded their own capacity to offer patients and their families support through decision-making. Sometimes just a fresh set of eyes who have expertise and having these types of conversations can be really helpful. Yeah, thanks for that. And I can say I've definitely leaned on my palliative care colleagues for these kinds of conversations several mm -hmm. times in the past. And, you know, I, I've seen it handled really artfully. So mm -hmm. I wonder, can you tell us your approach to goals of care conversations and what tips you have that we can use on the wards? So th there's a lot of different layers here. And part of what I talk to patients about is just framing the conversation appropriately. And so I'm very clear with them that the goals of care are longevity, function, and comfort. And when you're seriously ill and frail, uh, you have to prioritize what you want. We can work on all three to a certain extent, but you have to prioritize what you want so that the team can make recommendations to you that are going to help you most pursue what, what you really want to pursue in life. And then we can talk about the trade-offs in various areas as well. And I view that piece, not so much as the actual goals of care conversation, that's just education around the reality of medical care. When we start to really talk about goals of care with different patients, it can be really challenging because some patients and families are coping really well, and they have a really um, straightforward and rational appraisal of their, of their situation and their prospects. In that situation, it might just require offering them some information, validating their, their emotions and their circumstances, and then offering a recommendation. 
For other patients and families, though, they are coping less well. So you might think about situations in which anticipatory grief is really high or substance abuse is involved either with the patient or with the family or strained relationships within the family or estranged relationships within the family. In those situations, clinicians need to provide more structure to decision-making. There's a really wonderful book by a philosopher and ethicist named Jennifer Blumenthal Barbie. She wrote a book called Good Ethics and Bad Choices about nudging in clinical medicine. And nudging is essentially what we do when we set up a choice for somebody so that they're more likely to choose one thing over another. And so that might involve modifying default selections, that might involve framing the decision in a certain way, that might involve changing the valence of the decision or offering statistics in a certain way. And there's a lot of ethical controversy over what constitutes a nudge versus what constitutes coercion. There's a lot of nuances in that discussion there. The only reason I bring it up is for these patients and families who are very dysregulated and very disorganized, providing that structure might involve taking choices off the table for them. If they earnestly want to have their cake and eat it too, and that's impossible, you might say, all right, we're going to take this choice away. And if they balk, then you know that, okay, they're not actually ambivalent. They want perhaps the other choice. And I'll be a little bit more assertive in helping guide them through the decision-making. It could be really complicated. And this is probably when you're involving you know, a palliative care consultant. I think also it's really important as you're going through a goals of care discussion that, emo- that recognizing that emotions are going to come up for patients and the families, and you're going to have your own emotions too. And you should recognize that and you should honor all the emotions that are involved in the situation. One critical error I see happen a lot with clinicians is they're having a conversation with patient and family about a a new diagnosis and emotion becomes overwhelming for the patient and the family, but the clinician doesn't acknowledge that. And they just keep pushing on towards talking about the plan or the next steps and this is the classic, you've heard the story before, like, well, the doctor told me I had cancer and then everything after that was just blah, 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 blah. And it's because the oncologist or the doctor didn't stop, honor the emotion, and then ask permission to move on to talk about something else. And so whenever I'm shifting gears in a goals of care conversation, I'm always asking permission. Yeah, that that was a goldmine of information. Let me see if I could really quickly just boil it down to the key points that I want to make sure I take away from this conversation. So The first thing that we talked about is knowing the room, making sure we know who everyone in the room is by name and that everybody knows who we are and what our roles are. We sort of talked about that at the beginning. I love that you talked about naming emotions because that's something that uh, I learned from my palliative care colleagues can be really powerful. Oftentimes when the emotions are high or challenging or complex, it's easier for us to pretend that they're not there because that feels like it's making the conversation worse by acknowledging that someone is angry or frightened or frustrated. But in reality, oftentimes naming that emotion can put it on the table and allow people to deal with it and move on from it. We should ask permission when we change subjects or bring up hard information. And another one that I really want to highlight that you mentioned is making sure we have time. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of reasons that we feel like we need to get to the next thing is because our pager is going off or we know that we have something else going on, conference is coming. And so choosing a time to do this when they have our dedicated attention is going to be really important. The other one that I wanted to highlight that you mentioned is being prepared to give choices, recognizing that if we can't 
can't have it all. These are the things that realistically we can offer you. Where are your priorities? Because that's really the meat of the goals of care conversation, right? What are your goals? If you can't have it all, what do you really, really need? Totally. Yep, totally. So that that was all really excellent advice, Dr. Briscoe. I'm sure you're very good at these. Have you run into any situations recently where it was just a really challenging conversation? And how did you get through that? Just because I, I do this all day, every day, doesn't necessarily make it any easier. I think I have more backup plans if things go awry. Um, because each patient I see, each family I see is different, and they're going to bring their own unique selves into the room. And so unique challenges present themselves. I think that the most challenging interactions I have with some folks fall into a couple of different buckets. One is when decision-making stalls out. And so, you know, all the information has been conveyed, prognosis has been conveyed, and now we we have a decision before us, we have choices and people just don't choose. And what I find is that clinicians in those situations assume that it's for lack of information. So we'll get a consult and they say, you know, the wife really doesn't get it. She doesn't understand X, Y, Z. And while it's possible and it does happen that patients and family members are uninformed in those situations, I found that more likely than not, there's some other mental state going on that's stalling out the decision making. There's a really helpful paper on ambivalence. It explodes the concept of ambivalence into many different categories, one being uninformed. So somebody might be uninformed and, and look ambivalent. They might just be evolving in their decision-making. They just need time to like weigh everything, or they might be acting in a contrary fashion. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to decide against what everybody else wants, or maybe they're trying to assuage conflict. You know, I don't want to rock the boat, so I'm going to try and make a decision in this way. So there's a lot of different levels in this. And the reason why I bring this up is it's really important to be able to figure out the mental state of the patient and the family when decision-making stalls out so you can address it appropriately. Because if you assume that folks are uninformed when in fact they're actually just trying to assuage conflict with their spouse, you just keep providing them with more information, you're just going to annoy them and drive them away. And then, and then palliative care gets consulted and we're, and we're brought into a situation where the relationship between the family and the patient and the team has already broken down a little bit. I think another situation where these goals of care discussions can sort of go awry is when emotions are riding high and you don't allow enough time for that to kind of cool off or, or subside or integrate those emotions into this decision-making by acknowledging them and validating them. So whether it be anticipatory grief or anger. I encounter a lot of patients who are angry that a diagnosis should have been made sooner or whatever the case may be. So you need to acknowledge and validate those emotions. And at the same time, if there's a decision before you also offering a time-limited trial. And so the, the, the lack of a time-limited trial is probably one of the biggest lapses I find in clinical decision-making between, between teams and, and patients and families. If, if you're at a decision point and emotions are high and decision-making is stalling out, you lose nothing to say, you know what, how about we come back in three days or five days or in an outpatient setting, come back in three months or one month or whatever the case may be and try this thing. We're going to try whatever we're trying. And the really key point to a time-limited trial is when we come back around, we're going to look for objective criteria, whatever the case may be. We're going to look for the ventilator settings being lower. We're going to look for dad's woken up and is able to talk to us or whatever the case may be. We're not just going to come back in three days time and see how things are going. That's too open-ended. So the time-limited trial is a really underutilized tool in goals of care discussions. Finally, there's a really helpful book called Getting to Yes 
uh, written by a couple of business school professors uh, about negotiating, not necessarily about medicine. And they recommend this principled negotiating style where you uh, negotiate based on the merits of the principles at play. And the principles here in in medical decision-making are the goals of care. Those are the interests that you're trying to align between the clinical team and the patient and the family. And so where you're gonna look for objective criteria that you're shooting for, Everybody's a problem solver here. Everybody's trying to find this sort of wise and amicable outcome. And you're going to work together to try and overcome this problem. People aren't the problem. The problem's the problem. We're all going to look at the problem together. So that's just a few of my thoughts about how goals of care conversations could go more smoothly. That's great. Let me see if I can pull a couple really excellent pearls from what you just said. So uh, first off, I think recognizing that the goals of care conversation may not be singular and people may just need time to sit with the challenging information that they've been given. And we should walk in with our first conversation recognizing that it might not be our last. And so one thing that I often have to remind myself is I'm not walking in with goals. I'm walking in to figure out their goals. Um, And it may take them a couple of conversations to figure out what they are. And so, you know, one conversation may not be sufficient. The time limited trial is an excellent point that I want to just highlight again. That often comes into play when there are families whose goals seem unrealistic and we can give their plan a try, but we need to be really clear about what we're looking for to see whether or not that plan was successful. And then can you give the principled negotiation style is interesting. Can you give us a a concrete example of that? Yeah. So probably one of the best examples is the time limited trial. So if you think about it, so, you know, a good example is like feeding tubes and dementia. So we know feeding tubes and dementia don't work. They're actually harmful, but some families insist that, you know, we're going to starve mom unless she gets a feeding tube. So, and you get at an impasse. If you really buckle down on your position and take a hard negotiating style, you say, no, absolutely not. We're not doing a uh, feeding tube. And the family insists, no, we are. Now you've both taken hard negotiating styles. You're at an impasse. Everybody's angry and, the, and nothing moves forward for the poor patient who has dementia and isn't even involved in the decision-making. So a principal negotiating style would, would go like this. So you recognize that everybody is a, is a, is a problem solver here. We're trying to figure out this problem. It's not, it's not family against doctor. We're all problem solvers. We're all trying to take care of this patient. In doing that, you're going to separate people from the problem. So the problem is how can we care well for this patient? Not, you know, this, this family member who keeps insisting on the feeding tube. And so it doesn't really matter whether we trust them or they trust us so much. Trust is really important, but what matters more is that we are aligned around a common interest, which in this context is the goals of care. We all are interested in helping to care well for this patient. How can we align? How can we figure out how to align in that way? And then you're going to invent an option for mutual gain, which is the time-limited trial. Um, And so you're going to try the time-limited trial, but the key, the key here is the objective criteria. A principal negotiator is going to yield to principles. You've set up these objective criteria. You're going to start the feeding tube. You're going to say, all right, we're going to come back in a week and see, is, is mom more awake and able to engage in some meaningful fashion that you define based on your conversation with the family? And the thing is that objective criteria is really important because if you come around a week later of just like, all right, we'll see what happens in a week and you're having a conversation with the family, you're just going to repeat the same family meeting you just had a week ago. So you come and you look and you see, and she's no better. And you say, you know what, see, um, we remember we agreed that X, Y, Z, and it didn't happen. The tube feeds aren't working. And in fact, she's developing worse edema. She aspirated, whatever the case may be, we're actually hurting her. And so you're looking at the principles to influence decision-making, not emotions or pressure or these sorts of things. 
The flip side of this though, is let's say she did get better. She did sit up in the chair and start interacting more meaningfully. Then you got to proceed with the, the family's plan. So even though the evidence would tell you not to do a feeding tube, now you're locked into a feeding tube because the time limited trial showed you that. So you have to be a little bit creative and accommodating and how the time limited trials might end up. You have to also have some integrity in honoring them if they don't go the way and anticipate. But as long as we keep in mind that the family and the patient's goals are really the most important thing, not our own, I think it would probably be totally. easy to rationalize those two. Yeah. Totally. So yeah. Thank, thank you for that perspective. Um, Dr. Briscoe, this has been such an enlightening conversation. So you might run into Dr. Briscoe at uh, Duke or on the ward at the VA on the palliative care service, but you know, uh, he's always available. And thank you so much for your time today, Dr. Briscoe. Thank you. Have a good one. Yes. And as always, the views and opinions expressed today are our own and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of the Durham VA or the Veterans Health Administration.